0: One, two, three, four, I'm testing.
1: Yo, 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 what's cracking my people? Welcome to yet another episode of ADQ's Renaissance. I'm your host with the most keeping 100 from coast to coast. Through God I boast. A. D. Q. Today is Monday. September the 7th. 2020. It is. It is Labor Day. Hopefully, you all have had a very fruitful Labor Day. So today's episode, we're gonna get into this director's this cut. We're gonna talk with my good friend Mike Burke, my good friend Lauren Kaplan, Miss Jennifer Williams, straight out of New York, straight out of Philadelphia, Miss uh Hall Karambe. Yeah. All of them have great directorial experiences of their own. We're going to talk to them. We're going to mash it up with them. And also, y'all are going to hear the joint, the incredible song, Clock on the Wall by my good friend, Mr. GP. But you all know me. I like to start every single episode. And that is In the Word. Yes. Oh, I like this one. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 2. Let someone else praise you and not your own mouth and the outside and not your own lips. And somewhere in Matthew it says don't tell your right hand what don't tell your left hand what your right hand is doing. <sighs> y'all go ahead and marinate on that. Y'all go ahead and marinate on that. It's a two hour episode. You know, I just we just finished doing it. It's a two-hour episode. So I'm just gonna say, Y'all get ready. For some really beautiful dialogue between five directors on this on the next coming up on the next ADQ's Renaissance.
2: Running, man. Get off a corner, you could do better, man Tick, tick like a car missing oil Probably because your life without that oil Ooh. Ooh. Listen, time still ticking heart still kicking But don't burn bridges Love moms, pray for that food in your kitchen Cause when that drama comes, you gon' need a mention Know what I mean? Ain't nothing guaranteed I pray my three steeds still praying on their knees I pray with my brother out the penitentiary Gonna raise the seeds and let God rain. Yeah, some rain, gon' snow. But best believe the sun coming back for sure. For sure. Lord have mercy on our souls getting crazy down here. We countin' math, really Feed the kiddos and tuck them in the bed swiftly I can't trust no one because they hand shifty Sleep one, ah yeah, be better duck Pluck your fellas like cold weather for green bucks Life sucks, depending on how you livin' You get what what you put in, so how you livin'? We eat good like Thanksgiving I'm not kidding, I'm back for my redemption Put a slap on the game, this big boy pimping You know I'm a Christian, but not the word they pimping I wasn't raised by the church, the streets raised me different Get on your grind, stop wasting time You ain't putting in work because you post online Get on your grind, stop wasting time You ain't scaring nobody because you backing eyes Get on your grind, stop wasting time you ain't putting in work because you post online. Get on your grind. Stop wasting time. You ain't scaring nobody because you pack their
1: It's great to have repeat guests along with us now. Today, we tonight we are talking about directing. When I first got into directing, Todd Fisher looked at me and said, Okay, why in the world are you want to do it? Because directing is a thankless job, you work really hard, um, but you don't get no praise, no credit for it. Why do you want to do it? And me, I said, Because it kind of heightens. Um, it it, it kind of teaches me to heighten my level of collaborative nature that takes place in the theater, and it kind of it'll kind of teach me some responsibility. Now, starting with Ardency, uh, Ardency lays first. Ardency, yes, uh, Jennifer, Lauren, and Mike. Why did y'all start getting? Why did y'all get into directing? Uh, I got into re- directing because um. Hmm. I like,
3: one of the things I liked about, I I love about being a director is that it allows me to pursue many different art forms. And what do I mean by that? Theater, it encompasses uh, painting, it encompasses dance, it encompasses writing. And I think as a director, it allows me to be able to utilize all of those facets about myself, because I do all, I do those things. And I, uh, and in all honesty, I'm a tad bit of a control freak. So,
1: I can be too. That's the Virgo with me. Um Hey, I'm a Sag man. What can I have that What can I say? There we go. There you go. Huh. It is what yeah. it is. Jim, what about you? Denver, what about you?
4: That's a great question. I agree with collaboration. I love telling stories that are bigger than myself. I think that's what really captured my imagination about directing and being the nexus of all these different languages and conversations. Um, I think what drew me to theater and especially opera and music theater is I love the, the encounter between the possible and the impossible. I think that allows us to challenge what our reality could be like. And I just find that such a poignant an exciting question.
1: Very nice. Lauren, what about you, brother?
5: Um, so my experience with directing is a little different. I'm somebody who used to do uh, a good deal of it, a good deal of my own creation of work. And right now, I've been an undergrad, and I've been focusing more on the acting side of things. But my realization has been that as lovely as acting is and as important it is that there are actors, I'm realizing for people like myself, people of color, people who are. Mis- uh, Uh, who are minorities, generally, we don't have stories written for us. We don't have people who know how to tell those stories properly, who have the power, the agency to do so. So my kind of goal moving forward is, as I also pursue the acting, is getting back into writing, back into directing, back into creating experimental theater that talks about those things. Because nobody young is doing it. And I have a couple friends who are getting into it and starting to try to do that, but I'm realizing If I want stories that I can be a part of, I need to start writing them and putting them out there. So that's sort of
0: how I'm approaching this conversation.
1: What about you, Mike?
0: Unmute myself. As the last one on the list, it's real easy to riff off of what everybody else has been talking about. And what I've heard a lot of is that we are storytellers. And that's, I think, what draws draws me in there with a strong, well-written show, I can see the story as I'm reading it. And I want to help tell that story and share it with an audience and work with the, the whole community, the actors, the, the, the set designers, the sound folks, the lighting people in order to tell that story in the best, best way possible.
1: So when I first got into directing, this is what I did wrong. I did not uh, study the source material. You see, Lewis, uh, Lewis Panzer, who is a great writer, excuse me, had this short had this short play for the evening of short plays at the drama center here in Greensboro. Uh, this the name of the play was Sport of Crowns. It was a takeoff of guess. Guess what it was a takeoff of? Okay. What was the title again? Sport of Crowns. Game of, Game of Thrones. Bingo's Game of Thrones. Yeah, mm-hmm. guess how much? Guess how much Game of Thrones that I've ever watched? Uh, none. Exactly. <laughs> 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 but I should have, in order to familiarize myself with the material. But that's one thing that's integral to being a very good director is knowing your source material. Oh, Would y'all yeah. agree? Oh, definitely. Now, now, let's rewind a little bit. I asked y'all what got what got y'all into directing. Introduce yourselves to the world. Um, again, ladies first, same order. Uh, so,
3: I got... Uh, my name is Ardencia Hall Karambe. I'm a native of Texas, uh, but I live in Philadelphia, the uh, Houston area. Um, I've been doing theater as long as I can remember. I luckily grew up in a a town that had a strong theater program um, and I went I have a bachelor BFA in acting I have an MA in directing I have a PhD in performance studies I teach community college uh, in Philly I worked in New York City while I was in graduate school and uh, I love doing theater I love every aspect of it so
1: that's brief okay Jennifer.
4: Hi, I'm Jennifer Williams. I am a director who specializes in opera and music theater, especially contemporary opera, site-specific opera and performance, and immersive opera and performance. Um, let's see, I actually got into directing via music, which is probably what drew me to that side of, sort of this area of discipline of, of the art form. Um, let's see, and when I'm not directing, I also research, um, let's see, particularly German theater traditions uh, as well, and contemporary opera as well.
1: Okay. Nice to, meet,
5: nice to meet both of y'all. Uh, Lauren? Um, so my name is Lauren Kaplan. Uh, I grew up in the Durham scene, mostly the experimental theater scene. Um, so that's more what I know is independent and experimental theater. So like you were saying, like uh, uh, immersive performance, that's something I've done some work with. Um, uh, currently a student at UNCG. I'm a senior this year in the BFA program. Um, and moving forward i'm hoping to do a little more writing a little more directing a little more creation again um manifesting theater rather than trying to find it which is what i have been doing and i'm finding isn't this fruitful
1: you know it's lauren uh, lauren real quick it's funny that you say that because <coughs> the next gentleman has actually been doing uh some of that himself right mike
0: To some extent, yeah, Um, I I guess I came up, everybody else was talking about the experiential pieces that they've been working on. My background's a lot more traditional. Um, I found an outlet for myself in theater in high school and really was drawn to to the art of it, but then I put it on the back burner for 20-some years Um, and didn't really come back to it until I was in my late 30s. Mostly as an actor at first, and then I started seeing stories being told that I thought could be told better, differently. And so I stepped up to do some one acts and then moving into to full-length pieces as, as I learned the craft of directing, mostly by experience. Um, I've got an associate in fine arts uh, and, and really appreciate the work that, that our identity now doing with community colleges because I think that's oh so important. Uh, and then I got my BS in communications just because it was more convenient than anything else. Um, but along the way, I've been working in community in some semi-professional theater as an actor and a director. Um, I, I've done some of the backstage work at different points. I'm not real good at it, but enough to know that when I'm working with these wonderful creative artists, um, how to express my vision and share it with them so that we can all move forward in. And again, I fall back on this this trope of telling stories because basically that's what we do, whether it's the traditional theater, whether it's experiential theater, whether it's something new and avant-garde or an old trope that's been brought back out and trying to find new ways, new pieces of that to share with people.
1: Very nice. And if y'all don't know who I am, you may as well turn off the daggone live video. Um,
0: Bye. Oh. <laughs>
1: so, so um I'll say what I'll say that I that I had an interest in directing and writing ever since I first fell in love with theater. I guess if I fell in love with theater, I just fell in love with the whole thing. And as I've grown as a director, I started looking at teachers of theater whom, who has uh, systems that's, that, I'm more, that I'm more so identified with. And whom i most identify with, uh, y'all theater students, y'all write this down, Uda Hagen, write this name down, Uda Hagen. Why Uda Hagen? Well, because, uh, and I've used Uda Hagen system a lot, because I believe that It's not, and I went in the theater like this. It's not, I'm going to pretend, I'm going to get on stage and pretend to be another person. If you're on stage pretending, you need to clock yourself. No, it's not pretending. You are, whoever you are, like for instance, Adrian is either in the audience, at a basketball game, on a date, wherever. He's not on stage. Adrian's not on stage characters on stage you are stepping into the skin of a human being in order to prepare for that you have I say do background work establish given circumstances um um what did the character do what did the character do prior to the scene what does the what's the, why is the character doing during the scene why are they doing anything that they're doing in a particular piece um, Ar, uh, Ardency, uh, yes, yes, uh, What's your method of directing? Uh, what's your method of getting the uh, play, getting the, the getting things started? Well, m- most of my work and, and my
3: scholarship is uh, and and my training was based in Stanislavski, who Uta Hagen based a lot of her work off of. So I I, I don't classify myself as a method director, but I utilize a lot of Stanislavski's. Uh, methodologies <laughs> and teaching students. So about given circumstances, I bel- I thoroughly believe in actor's homework. You have to understand that archetypal human being that, that the playwright has created and being being able to give a background story, being able to understand how they got to that place gives you a sense of understanding why they're doing what they're doing. Human beings do things because of not being just because of larks, but they something is driving us to do certain things. So uh, it, it becomes important for the student to understand. Why the the character is thinking the way they do? They do so in my class. I I, I utilize a system that I call um, the actor's pyramid. And so we look at the physicalization of the character. We look at the mental, the cycle, psycho, psychodynamics of the character. We understand what try to understand what's going on emotionally with the character, and what are and how nature and nurture imply uh, and and play upon that, uh, because we are creatures of of the environment in which we grow we grow up in and the environment in which we live and we react to those things and we try to make them as real as possible on stage i totally agree that when you are on stage you become somewhat because if we look at the history of theater and acting it comes out of the whole notion of ritual and uh when thespus steps out of he was a priest he steps out of that circle and becomes that actor he he is taking on he took on that possession he became possessed by the god that he was portraying at that time period and so actors become some possessed by the characters that they are playing at that time period Um, i tell people if you come off stage and you remember what you did then you weren't in the scene you have it's not (laughs) you know what i'm saying you have that world has to be real for that two hours that you're walking across the boards that is the reality everything else uh is outside of that 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 time that verisimilitude you know becomes extremely important so I, that's one of the things I try to home in as a professor and teaching students and what I and I do in my own company, getting people to understand, to be submersive into the work.
1: So uh, while you have wrote Stanislavski, I was looking for my book that covers a lot of uh, Stanislavski's teachings. And... In- I'm not going to look for it because that would be extremely unprofessional and disserving to all those who are watching this particular podcast. But I will say that I learned that Stanislavski, right, Stanislavski was like completely real. Like everything has to be 100% real. There is no, <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's like, um, Mike, Mike will tell you this, um, because me and Mike have worked together a lot of times. I have been cast in roles that were originally, set, that were originally written for white men, right? According <laughs> to Stanislavski, I couldn't have done that. But then Stanislavski came along with that magic if. You know, I was just bullcrap with y'all. Go ahead, do what you, do what you can. Just go ahead and make uh, take advantage of that magic if. I'm like, really, man? Really, Constantine? Man, you trip.
3: <laughs> I think part of the thing about Stanislavski is you have to understand, he was an innovator he didn't you know realism realistic theater in in the sense that we know it didn't exist during his time period he was stabbing in the dark these were new plays that were come out when when Chekhov and Ibsen were writing they had never had plays where it was all about um much more presentational before that. With him, uh, with Stanislavski, and with uh, with Chekhov, and and, uh, and I say Ibsen, we become much more internalized. What is happening internally with the the character? And so his methodology is is stabbing in the dark at trying to find the best way to interpret these new types of characters that he was discovering in in the work. So. Um, there's no telling, you know, he was pulling things out of the air and Magic If is one of those that he pulled down.
1: That's why, <laughs> that's why Sam Slavsky did something that we all as artists, directors, actors, all that should do. He took notes. hmm Now, um, on that note, um, on that note, Lauren, um, we're going to say here on the directorial pad before we go into your operatic world, Jennifer. Um, Lauren. Um, What are some
5: pieces that you directed and uh, how did you approach those directions? Sure, Um, keep in mind, I am very much a student right now, especially with directing, which is something I'm having to return to. So I'm probably gonna say things that are wrong. This is my experience. This is is me talking about me doing my best. I just wanna say that as somebody who's learning as much from this conversation that we're having, as well as like expressing my own understanding. But, you're
1: probably going to say things that are right because you're coming from your experience, sir.
5: Right. Um, I, I know for me, uh, w- one of my favorite directing exercises I've ever ever done is nonsense scenes, and I've done a, a lot of those through, you know, just academia stuff like that. But also on my own is kind of an exercise where you're given uh, totally uh, no context clues, no information, no nothing. It's just random dialogue that could be interpreted one of maybe a thousand different ways. And you have to tell your own story with it. Um, And the reason I like that is it's something to build on. It it gives you uh, a freedom to sort of explore ideas you might not get to normally play with in a a normal production setting where you can have more creative agency with the story itself. Um, I know for me when I was younger uh, I know I used to lean more into the serious side of things so I would like take a piece that could have been about somebody stubbing their toe and try to make it a war scene. I was that kid. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I've had you but, in uh, class, dude. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: yeah.
5: um, but I, I think also, um, in general, what I really like about directing is, for me personally, the, the, when it comes together, when you do a scene the right way or you have a world built the right way, um, and the actors actually really inhabit it and go for it, um, you get to see something come to life that you've seen in your head a million times. And I think that for me, like the reason I got into acting, the reason I got into writing, music even, like I was obsessed with storytelling as a kid. I was affected by pretty much a bunch of movies, a bunch of theater. I grew up around a bunch of different artists. So it was really impressed upon me, the importance of creation and the importance of storytelling. And I, I knew that was what I wanted to do. So I look at directing as probably the most creative and also probably the most stressful and anxiety-inducing position in, on the creative team because you get to say, okay, here are all the different collaborators I want from all these different disciplines. You have to make it make sense. Um, so it's really lovely, but it's horrifying. Um, I say that as somebody who's, uh, one of my best friends and my roommate for like two and a half years, uh, 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 Ralph Jones, uh, who, you know, Adrian, um, we live together. So I learned a lot about directing actually from living with Ralph. Um, there are a lot of things I didn't know as an actor that it gave me more perspective on both acting and directing because i got to see sort of behind the curtain um especially working with them and doing shows with them and kind of you know and sometimes even coming and consulting helping direct you know scenes and stuff like that um it taught me a lot actually to be with somebody who was so much more advanced and just be around that a lot it it made me really realize how much work how much time how, how much effort goes into being a good director you know
1: oh yeah like and you were right like um when i was when i directed time when i directed airbnb butchery um i stressed so much i'm surprised that I, that I was able to uh, lock my hair up you know what i'm saying i'm surprised it all didn't fall out now you came now you came from the school of ralph jones which is a great school that man knows his theater me i came from me I came from the school of, you know, I learned, I took a directing class at Guilford College. Taking the play analysis class taught me how to, um, like, really break down the plays, like really channel my Virgo analytics side, analytical side uh, when it comes to theater. Um, and then watching this man, Mike, watching him and how he directs, you know, that's that helped give me an idea of how it goes. So Mike, um, What's the What's the approach that you take to take to your directing?
0: Uh, that's a difficult question, because it changes with each show. Uh, you I, know I, I what? I have to look. I
1: did watch you. I did watch you direct. I did watch you direct Private Lives. And I watched you direct Ruin. Two completely different shows. Two completely different styles. Sorry for cutting you off. Please
0: go ahead. Nope, not a problem. Uh, in fact, I was going to reference Ruined, because of course I cast you in it, um, and it was a It was a show I'd read about five or six years ago. If you're not familiar with it, please read it. It's a wonderful piece. Uh, It looks at the Civil War uh, in Africa in the late 90s and its impact on a small village and the people there. And it talks a lot about the violence towards women during that time. It's not a comfortable show by any stretch, but it's very, very powerful. Uh, When I first read it, I knew I wanted to direct it. And I spent the next five or six years trying to find a company that would put it up and also let me direct because I wanted to tell that story. Um, And it it was interesting dealing with a cast of all black actors and trying to get them to realize that their experiences as a black American had very little to do with telling the story of black Africans because the culture is so different. We spent a lot of time at table work trying to find references trying to find similarities that we could work from and build we had as in most community theater we had some some very experienced actors and we had some brand new actors and trying to find the levels to bring all of that together was a extremely challenging and extremely rewarding experience in, in being able to tell this um this story about inhumanity but the humanity at the kernel of of what happens in people's lives um, so I mean that when I approached differently because I said the story was different um, in doing private lives which is an old chestnut from the um, old coward who wrote back in the, the, the 30s I think maybe even the 20s um, at looking at Uh, upper-crust European society that really doesn't exist anymore, but trying to tell the story in a way that related to people in the the, the 2000s and 2010s. And I approached the actors differently, we approached the storytelling process differently, but the key to it all, I think, was finding, again, the humanity in this flippant world of private lives it's the same way we tried to find the humanity in the horrible, violence-ridden world of Ruin. Finding
1: the humanity, and you know, and you know, <clears throat> I'm actually experiencing a little bit of what you've experienced uh, in with Ruin myself right now. For that español, my next play, uh, my next play that I'm putting up um, on November 6th, Zoom and YouTube Live. <laughs> Shameless plug right there. I am dealing, uh, I have cast, a cast filled with, there are four black people in the cast, but everybody else is Hispanic. Casts of like seven, eight, but four black people, me being one of them, everybody else is Hispanic. And I'm like, okay, how can I learn about this culture? How can I respect this culture? And how can I, and how can I help, you know, help this culture tell stories and whatnot and leave a me- meaningful mark for my culture their culture and the theater culture at large right and i will and i'm like hey anybody who does their homework and stuff and decides to step out of their culture into another culture and direct a story based around that culture and i say hey if you did your homework kudos now i think when well, i think opera yeah, that was just a, that was just a random jump there, right? What wasn't it? I recently talked to a cast member. I recently to a cast member, and she mentioned directing a musical in Argentina once, right? So anybody who directs a musical or some type of musical form of theater, I'm like, power to you. Well, I think opera, I think Le Mis. I think Family of the Opera, and I think God bless <laughs> anybody who. Emotional, emotional. Jennifer, please share your experiences with
4: us. Um well you know, I had a fun kind of Funny point of entry into opera. I never see. I wasn't really exposed to opera when I was younger. Um, I was exposed to musicals a lot, and that was kind of my path. I knew I wanted to be a musical, musical theater storyteller of some, some kind. So I thought, oh, I can I can direct musicals. I actually wanted nothing to do with opera for a long time and avoided it like the plague Uh, i mean it just has a lot of really negative baggage right and very few people really feel comfortable at an opera house in an opera everything about it is really alienating um but it wasn't until i was actually in a rehearsal at (laughs) with a contract where i'm paid to as an assistant director to be there so i had to be there um in it what captured my imagination is during a sing-through which is the equivalent of a read-through um is uh, it was in Deidoneus, and the the baritone sang the word ah in the middle of a sentence twice. And what was extraordinary about it is that in that single word, which in and of itself means nothing, the music packed these multiple layers of meaning all at once. It was astonishing, and it just Endlessly captured my my imagination of you know what does it mean to tell a story in an instant with multiple layers and that's what I really wanted to pursue. Um, since then, I traditional opera has never really been a good fit for me. I'm someone who's really passionate about acting and storytelling, um, and so I've spent a lot of my career dismantling operas, actually, and finding you know ways for them to be more accessible because I understand audience members who don't want to go to them, <laughs> but I want it to tap happen- into to that really exciting kernel and make that accessible to to everyone so everyone can have that experience that I have. Uh, So I put opera in conversation with site-specific performance and more recently immersive theater too um, because just having singing right up close is just such an exciting thing. Uh, I'm not a singer at all um no one ever wants to hear that not even happy birthday (laughs) for me i'm terrible Uh, so to me i think uh you know singing is extraordinary uh and i want you know i want other people to to experience that too um so let's see most recently one of the projects i directed i it wasn't an opera at all i took um let's see that this uh these art songs that are usually performed in concert called the four last songs uh and they're about this woman who's uh embracing death and is actually at her t- coming to terms with death, um, which i found to be really beautiful and so i staged it in this white box uh white box studio in new york called the alchemical as a ritual that involved the whole audience um so the soprano memorized it didn't perform it as a concert but instead it was like a theater piece where she would um let's see find a letter somewhere in the audience at the beginning of a song that had the english translation of what she was about to sing and she would read that and perform that, hand it to an audience member, and then begin the song and interact with specific people. And they would. And at one point, for example, uh, everyone in the audience had these balloons on their their chairs. And there was one song about um, a garden fading at the end of spring. And so when she tossed her balloon in the air the whole she invited the whole audience to toss their green balloons in the air too and so this white box came this uh sort of bouncing box of all these balloons green balloons going everywhere and so they were submerged in this sort of wilting petals and wilting Uh, yeah it was really it was really fun and i think um let's see it was like this very exciting visceral experience that everyone was a part of and had buy-in um I think that's what a lot of performances is, is missing. I think that buy-in from from audience and involvement and personal visceral experience.
1: Party Rona. You know, but you know what? You got me thinking, you see, you got me thinking, what if somebody what if somebody um what if somebody African did a play, did something like that? because in african, in african spirituality we celebrate our uh we celebrate our ancestors you know what i'm saying and what if what dang i'm getting this idea let me just stop for someone stealing um <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I
3: probably have already done I'm it.
0: taking
5: notes
3: <laughs> i probably <laughs> have already done it brother
5: I am actually taking notes, but I won't take notes of your ideas. I don't want to steal anything. you, Although thirty years down the road, I probably will direct something that invariably has it thrown in there because that's how all art is. But
1: there you go, man. Plan for the future. I will
3: say that right now, the production that my company is doing uh, uh, is called All Art. I- I'm, I'm I I te- I you know I do theater, but I'm also a musical person my venue and my first step into theater was through musical theater uh, I'm a singer uh, and and so I, I, I direct and I write musicals uh, as well so uh, uh, we involve musical African spirituality in a lot of our shows uh, I can't I can't help myself it's part of my DNA it's like so I I have a tendency to uh, utilize some in some cases uh one of the shows I did Liz Estrada many of you may know Liz Estrada and yeah. so I I took Liz Estrada and I turned it to Liz Estrada across your legs sister it became a musical <laughs> uh you know and uh, utilizing music from uh, musical influences from the 1960s particularly motown and uh and uh, and british the British Invasion. So uh, I, I have a tendency to want to uh, find ways to bring classical work to audiences that might not see it. And so I have I will mix genres in that sense, but I will also, in the show we're doing right now, which is called All Lives Don't Matter, um, we are connecting it to the ancestors through uh, the ritual of libation pouring, through uh, African dance, through uh, 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 many different ways, a lot drumming, a whole bunch of different ways to tell the story of what it means to be African American in
1: this time
3: period in this country.
1: So, Maybe you union, create something together, ma'am. Yeah, I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, I'll get you a bus ticket, bro. I've been, I, uh, <laughs> I have to tell you, when I went to Philadelphia the first time, I, I, I loved it. Wilma Theater. All of that. Uh, the, 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 the University of the Arts. Oh, I didn't want to leave. I didn't even hit the Rocky Sets because it was raining. Mm. I'm sorry I'm so loud. But I, but you, you, know how, you know how bad I wanted to go to the Rocky Sets and scream out, Adrian! And then say, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, come. You have an open invitation. You're more than welcome to come. Thank you. You're like you're I welcome. said, we... Need to chop it up. We, oh, yeah, we need to chop it up. But, um, let me say focus. But, um, now I have a question. Now, here's, an, here's a new topic. Here's a topic that I would like to discuss with you all. Cause I'm learning. I'm learning as a new, the, as a, a relatively new director. Um, see, in theater, see, when we're directing and stuff, it's not necessarily. I tell you what to do, and you best do it, or else I'm going to kick your hind parts out of the show. It's <laughs> more so, more so, we are a family mm-hmm. like a giant tree, right? Right?
4: Yeah.
1: Yeah. We, we are coming together. We are coming together to form a beautiful unit. hmm However, you have that some in some theater circles you have that daggone diva, that daggone diva, the David Ruffin, Bobby Brown, Eddie King Jr. of the bunch, who's feeling themselves all too much, <clears throat> and wanna and want to present a problem. I've had an actor, <clears throat> excuse me, I've had an actor quit on me before, uh, in the middle of rehearsal. Yeah, yeah. How could someone quit? Mike, how could someone quit on such an angelic individual like myself?
0: (laughs) Adrian, I'm not even gonna touch that line. (laughs) You and I've been there before.
1: (laughs) Um, I've had, I've had an actor get drunk and hungover and miss rehearsal two weeks before the show. Um, that has happened. Now with Sport <laughs> of Crowns, this is no one's oh, <laughs> fault. <laughs> with Sport of Crowns, no one's fault. But everybody involved with Sport of Crowns, the writer, the actor, the, the lead actor, the substitute actor, the actor, the the even the even the even the youngest, uh, she was a teenager. Everybody got sick, except for me. I didn't get sick. My point anyway, my point is how, my fellow directors, how do we handle that difficult David Ruffin, Bobby Brown, Eddie Kane Jr. actor who is hit whose head is freaking huge and can't and
5: you have trouble sustaining it. How Um. I I guess you start with hoping that people give enough of a shit to be professional and come in and go home.
0: Uh, I uh, I, I was just
5: saying you kind of hope that people would be give enough of a shit to be professional come in and do their work and go home and not make it a mess. Um, I know for me personally both as an actor and in directing moments I've had to take people aside and talk to them and be like hey that's not okay to do that's super disrespectful. You're not only being unprofessional, you're being a shitty person, and if you keep doing it, they're gonna get rid of you, you gotta stop. Um, I've also been on the other end of that, I've had periods where I didn't have my shit together and I had older actors or directors pull me aside and tell me, get your shit together. We're not playing a game here, we have work to do. But I think the biggest thing you can start to try to do with that person is just level with them and wake them the fuck up. And If you can't wake them up, or if they're too stuck in their bullshit, I think, unfortunately, it is smart sometimes to get rid of them as quickly as possible and just get somebody else to do it, because there's 20 other people who want to do the same thing they were going to do. No matter how brilliant they were, if they don't want to be in the room, fuck them. Get somebody better who gives a shit, you know? I'd rather have somebody who'd never acted before, but who wanted to do it more than anything, than a guy who's acted his entire life, who just doesn't give a shit
1: about what he's doing. Okay, so of the four of y'all... I take it that mm-hmm. I take it that Lauren and uh, ardency are kind of like the no nonsense unbraed. Uh, I will I will go inside your head if you if
0: you get. More <laughs> <right>. <laughs>
1: and I wanna know how Jennifer. <laughs> Jennifer, how would you handle?
4: Uh huh. Well, I let's see. I work in the discipline that invented the word diva. So this is a very, (laughs) it is not an unfamiliar problem. I think, I think um, I encounter most frequently in site-specific performance, actually, because um, especially for a lot of classically trained singers, they're not accustomed to being in a non-traditional venue, especially a space that's usually not where performance happens at all. And oftentimes people don't know what they need until they don't have it. Um. And I think a lot of uh, meltdowns as a work can happen when people uh, feel like they're in in kind of a a foreign space and they don't have their usual safety nets. Um, I have a working theory that, you know, others might disagree with, but I feel like there is a a critical window of opportunity for a director to build that bridge with this individual. (laughs) Um, At the outset, of your work together in rehearsals. It kind of comes down to trust and whether they feel like they can come to you with concerns and anxieties early on, or if you're gonna be an obstacle to them. Um, Let's see. And so I feel like, you know, just that interpersonal relationship, building that early on is, is really important. And just uh, I think watching my delivery of directions and building relationships with them, that can be, uh, that's kind of critical. I think <laughs> my, my most difficult experience, I was doing, uh, challenging experience, I was doing, uh, directing a site-specific production of La Boheme in uh, Washington, D.C.'s Eastern Market, the North Hall,
0: oh. which is
4: a 19th century market uh, that's still in use today. So it's the same period, I kind of spoke to the act to famous market scene, um, but I, ha- I set each scene, uh, the composer calls each act a picture, which is kind of beautiful. Um, it is a different installation at in a different point of the hall. And so the audience would pick up their chairs and travel to a different corner for the beginning of each act. And so with the orchestra actually, so the whole thing was this mobile experience. Um, and that was very, very new for the performers. So I had a, one particular performer uh, during the dress rehearsal actually locked herself in a supply closet and refused to come out. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I think she was just really upset. But um, I think you know, that—that's.
1: <laughs> <Eddie King.
4: laughs> yeah. yeah, that was really hard.
1: <laughs>
4: oh.
1: so, so Mike, Mike, uh, you being the kind. A gentle giant that you
0: are
1: I don't know if you I don't know if you came across this situation before but have you and uh, if you did how'd you handle it
0: well both as an actor and a director I've seen it um having had it occur as an actor and watched watching a director replace a person even as you know as close as two weeks out from opening the the reason that they got pulled was weighing down the rest of the company so much that when the director made the step and brought someone else in it lifted everyone in order to try and tell that story better because we didn't have to deal with the, the garbage um i mean from a director's side the flip answer is don't cast them but that's assuming you know the person or can see that during the audition process um Doing most of my work in community theater, you you start to know the people, you know who are going to give you a a problem and who you're going to have to work with in order to bring the best performance out. Um, But I think, as the director, and, and Jennifer mentioned this early on, you have so many different things that you have to do and have to make decisions on that that's one of them. And if you see someone who's pulling the storytelling and we gotta go back to storytelling who's pulling that down not allowing the rest of the group to express the story and share it with an audience. You've got to get rid of them. It. And it made it, it's hard to do. But as, as Lauren said, nobody's here replaceable. There are 20 other people out there who want to do this and who can come in with two weeks left and bring the show up so much further than the idiot who you have to get rid of. So You just forthright, everybody said, you talk with them a little bit privately. If you have to call them out in public, I hate to do that, but sometimes that's the necessary, that's the step that will get them onto the right path. If those things don't work, find someone else.
1: Um, And yeah, 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 Uh, I just wanna say, uh, can can be prepared in two weeks, yeah. Um, So Lauren and Mike, y'all both saw my play time you know that was a, that was that was the best night of my entire life um <clears throat> the young lady who sold the show miss Leticia hines she came in at the last minute right she was all book memorized all the lines in 2 days holy shit <laughs> that, yeah 2 holy days shit. 2 days i'm going to show y'all black side 2 days so yes Nobody's irreplaceable. And I'm pretty sure, Ms. Ardency, you would tell that to anyone who was acting up, wouldn't will you? Will you?
3: Uh, yeah, I, I, I had to laugh because I know uh, my company members are laughing their heads off. Because I will drop you a week before. I have no qualms. Because I believe you are suffocating the show, you're not give, you're not allowing it to live. If 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 I'm, if I this is, I, each show to me is a baby. I go through, I go through the process of pregnancy. When I choose a show, I, I digest it. It becomes part of me. I go through all the pains of pregnancy. I I tell my uh, my students, I tell my actors, you know that you know. I, the, I'm in the fifth month. Um, this is where we are. The, you know, the baby right now is feeling this. Uh, and the, here comes the theater fairy, which is like the pediatrician to come in and, and, and help us get everything together in the last minute. Uh, and, uh, and you're not gonna strangle my baby. You know what, you know do that. I'm not <laughs> gonna say, my, before you say something, bro. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. I got the handle of diva when I was an undergrad. Oh, do tell, do tell. Uh, a friend of mine in undergrad, he just said, he goes, you're a diva. And they'd start, and people started calling me diva. Ever since, and, and I don't consider myself a diva. I don't think I act like a diva, because I think in most cases, a true diva never gives themselves the title of diva. It's usually given by other people because I think, and, and Jennifer can correct me as I'm wrong, but I don't think I am, um, uh, which is a diva quality. But anyway, um, <laughs> um, that it's usually about the sense of aiming for perfection. I, 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 I know the story. I know what I see. I know what I'm looking for as the director. You're not in my head, you can't tell me. I'm telling you this, and I'm hoping I'm giving you enough elements through the visual that I'm giving you, the the conversations that we're having at the table, what we're those discussions with that I'm giving you enough that the story that I see here is being translated to you and then you as the performer or the designer, whoever's working with me, can then take that and put my story on stage. And so I, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't consider, I'm, I'm not an oppressive director in that sense. I try to leave, I'm very liberal in the sense I let the actors and the designers have a lot of space, but they still have to play on my playground, mm-hmm. okay? This is still my playground, all right? And so I will give you as much space as possible to create. When you start to misuse my playground, then we go have a conversation <laughs> you know and i will talk to you once i will warn you a couple of times i will give you hints now when I, when i finally stop talking mm, mm, that's when there's a problem and so usually at that point i'm ready to say goodbye to somebody and i will have somebody i mean i'm thinking of a, a particular show i was doing and this young man woo we <laughs> <Now> he, <laughs> he tried to show his ass so you know i had to bring somebody and this was literally a week before we opened brought somebody in there had them sit and watch the rehearsal and he was gone by that young man i met him at the door thank you your services are no longer needed and i turned around and went right back into rehearsal and i was done i, I mean and in, in, in it's usually to get me to that point um <laughs> you have you have pushed me into a corner you're strangling my baby and it's not you're not giving it the space it needs to grow to live and, and, and nobody can do that. You know, that that's not your place
1: So we can all agree that I like that baby analogy you're using so we can all agree that um, we wonder what are the equivalent to birth pains? you uh, know birth pains and all that tech week
0: right woo!
1: right right mike right tech yes. week. just woo, having to just hammer and push and give it and, uh, well then again i'll never get pregnant thank god so i don't know i don't know how what that's like um so so what are like Dream pieces for you all i will. I to start with mine Me, I want to direct a musical I want that experience Of directing a musical What is it like to say Okay, you sing like this You sing over here, you dance like this All that good stuff, what would that be like Um, And also What would I like to direct Besides a musical I know it's August Wilson piece. Hmm. hmm. I'll have to mull that over and get back to y'all. Um, Lauren, what's your dream direct, directorial job?
5: Oh, man, there's so many. I, I'm again, I'm a dabbler. I like playing with different things. So there's a billion different things I would love to do. Top five. Um. Okay, that makes it a lot easier. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, I was gonna try to keep it short too, cause I knew it would go on for a while, but um. I'd like, to, I'd like to direct a self-written piece um, sort of about uh, the dynamics of being sort of a person of color where I'm from, uh, being from Durham and sort of some of the things I experienced there and noticed. Uh, I want to, um, I definitely want to direct more immersive theater, more experimental theater. Um, I really like found place built shows because you, literally put the audience in a new world there are no rules which means actors can do crazy wild shit they never get to do you can do stuff environmentally you would never get to do on just a proscenium stage um the idea of directing something like that putting it together putting all the pieces together and seeing if what you constructed really creates a different world that people can walk into and just experience really excites me um uh i'm also really interested in theater that makes people um uncomfortable so because i think that's important i think sometimes it's nice to go to the theater and experience something we really like sometimes it's good to go and experience something new so i think one thing i'd want to play with with a lot of the immersive stuff is kind of that line between discomfort and horror and sort of what that would do to the audience what that could how that could manifest Um, I also, uh, there's a play I really enjoy called The Flick. I used to work in a movie theater, so for me, I just relate to a lot of those characters. It's a good slice of life play that's about really mundane people going through really real shit, and I also think that's important to talk about as well. So that's kind of my list right now, but I'm sure it'll grow the more I get into this. Oh
1: yeah, man, you're 21, man, so it's going to grow. You're a baby. You are
5: 21, right? Yes, I am.
1: That's right. See, I'm not the youngest one up in. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I'm 35. Um. So, um, uh, so So, Miss Ardency, What's your you, dream? Could, you could just call me Doc. Most people call me Doc. Doc. Thank you. Uh, You're I, welcome. I was just struggling with your name. I'm sorry. It's all right, bro. Miss <laughs> Doctor, ma'am, what's your favorite? Uh, what's uh, what's your dream show? Oh, my. Um, I,
3: I, I can't particularly say that I have a dream show, per se. I, I uh... Uh, to... Because if I want to direct it, I will try my best to direct it. Uh, so... I don't see there being a limitation on stopping me from directing something that I would want to, except for royalties. Um, uh, But nine (laughs) times out of ten, if I want to direct something, I will, I will either do it, try to do it on campus, or I will do it with my own company. So uh, I don't see that. But I, I love. As I mentioned before, one one of the things I hope to do in the near future. I have this. I, I really want to play around with, uh, Macbeth. And, uh, I see oh, some, um...
1: She see, said M-word.
3: I did. I did. I'm not, in, luckily I'm not in a theater space. So I'm okay. I'm in my office. So, um, but yeah. Uh, I, I like, I love the Bard. I, I love Shakespeare. And so, I love taking his pieces and, uh, and trying to find new ways to tell those stories. Once again, tell those stories so that, I think people are often, are afraid of Shakespeare as, as they are with opera. You know what I'm saying? Because they don't, they don't mm-hmm. understand the medium. They don't, they don't, uh, it's, it's, um, both of them are foreign languages to them. And I think a lot of times in, in both cases, it's because people haven't taken the time to really learn to read them so how so part of my job i think i've all as a scholar i thought one of the things i've always wanted to do um, was how could i bring these scholarly notions to the people that i grew up with you know the people that i you know who need to hear these stories the people who would want to be part of these stories but if they it feels too lofty for them so i always want to find ways to bring these kind of big ideas and 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 ideas of universality and humanity that we find in a a lot of the classic stuff to people who they're really talking about because Shakespeare was talking about my people they may not have had the same skin tone but he was talking about humanity in general and so and and I think a lot of times people are are set back because they don't understand the story and and learning to find ways to bring those stories to them. Um, think is part of my mission uh, as a director. So, I like playing with Shakespeare. I mentioned Liz Estrada. I love I love opera. I love finding these stories that I can somehow transform and bring to
1: the community in which I've, I do theater. So, Michael, t- Michael tell you my 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 journey with Shakespeare.
0: <laughs> it's been rocky. <laughs> but you have I won't say you've mastered the art form, because I don't think anyone ever masters Shakespeare, but you've come a long, long way and really do some good stuff with the Shakespeare pieces <laughs> I've seen you in.
1: Thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. You know, um, uh, uh, one guest, that one of the guests that we'll have next week, Miss Carmen Deese, um, she was hi- the Hippolyta of my Theseus, and which, according to Stanislavski, I wouldn't have been able to play that either. Dang, Constantine. Anyway, um, she was the hypothesis to my theseus. If I didn't have her drag me when we were dancing and stuff, uh, a Midsummer Night's Dream probably would have been a mid-afternoon's nightmare for me.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, yeah, what's one, what's some dream for you?
4: Oh, that's such a great question. You know, that's kind of what I've been thinking about lately. Don't so, touch me. In, in Brooklyn. <laughs> Uh, Oh man, that's one of my favorite. But actually, you know what I would love to do? I would love to devise more, actually. Um, I want to play more with linear narratives because devised uh, storytelling isn't something that opera really taps into yet. And I think there's a lot there. The last work that I did, um, it wasn't devised, but it was kind of in a similar vein and parallel methodology. So I directed this Rigoletto in uh, which is a story about this very wealthy duke who is a a predator um, and uses his power and advantage to seduce seduce women, seduce is a polite word. and so it's basically about that kind of power dynamic. So it took place; it was site specific in uh, the Box in New York, which is this notorious nightclub, like it's nuts. Um, and it was, I saw, it was an immersive piece. So you know, part of it took place in this—it's uh, this old jewel box theater, and that was like a speakeasy. Like this, I was setting it in, uh, you know, mafia in New York. You know? Gangster New York, and then the front was a pizza parlor, I, you know, fashion is a pizza parlor. But um, during the intermission beforehand, I splintered the characters all over the, the two-story theater and had these installations, these little micro-installations that were thematically tied to the story. So people had these up-close and personal little experiences with the characters that unpacked the, the thematic material of the story. And that was so interesting to me, just to have this kind of, the story less a, a narrative, this linear thing and more of a narrative that's um uh, both physically and uh conceptually more of a network like a web and that was really interesting to me i'd love to do more storytelling like that nice Nice.
1: very nice very nice i think i might i think i might figure out what what i want to do and i will announce it to you. you you all in the world after we get mike's dream piece which then again mike your dream piece was ruined so is-
0: for a long while and I was able to meet that with a wonderful cast and uh, it didn't have the audience I thought it deserved but yeah, these things happen we still told a darn good story and a very emotional one um, Thank you. I was very pleased with how it came out yes and you did a wonderful job as well um, I I've been doing to, just to try and and, and scratch my theme Peter Itch, during this days of COVID, Um, I've been working with a group of folks, and Adrian, you've been a part of it a few weeks. Uh, We do a weekly Shakespeare reading. It's not formal, uh, it's very casual, and we basically have fun with it, but it's really given all of us a chance to to see pieces that we know of by name, but have maybe not seen, not read all the way through. And I'd really like to try my hand at directing a piece of that. My background in Shakespeare was sort of like what you said, Ardency, of, uh, I was scared of it. Uh, The language was too high, it's too formal, it's, oh my God, it's gobard. I don't want anything to do with it. And uh, Adrian and I were taking an acting class together and the instructor was a big Shakespeare buff. In fact, he came up to Philadelphia and did one one of the the pieces there a few years back. and really broke it down for us, starting from the basic, what are, what is the language form that he's using? Let's take a look at how it works in in short pieces, let's do a monologue, let's do a dialogue, and then let's look at larger pieces. And I've been able to to experience a handful of shows since then. I'd really love a chance to dig in and direct one. Um, unlike adrian i've done a few musicals i'm not a singer by any stretch but I, I like what music and choreography can add to the storytelling i've been both blessed and cursed in doing them some i didn't have a music director until way late in the game and we really had to plow through that others i had some really strong choreographers and uh, music directors that allow me to tell the story, blending that together with the acting pieces. So uh, I I wouldn't mind taking on another one of those again. Um, And and if I can, Adrian, sort of uh, take away your your leadership role for just a moment, I want to speak to each of the directors here and everybody who's listening. One of the things, and I, I ran into this with Ruined, um, that I strongly urge, if you don't incorporate this in your pieces, please look for ways to do this. Um, all of you are familiar with white Choreographers and the work that they do and how they add to a piece. There's a growing movement in theater now to have intimacy coordinators. As directors, sometimes, I, I know I have failed. I said, well, just go ahead and kiss um, or whatever the scene called for without really walking it through the actors. And that was my fault. Um, I, I, we have a local person here who's done some training in it and we brought her in for Ruined, which is dealing with some uh, physical molestation of women on stage, uh, talking about um, some very, very horrid uh, violence towards women um, during in the past and just sort of bringing it up in the conversations. And her work with us I felt really moved. The the storytelling of the show along, and and I want to make sure that I incorporate that in any time where you've got physical interaction with people, because there's no sense just assuming that your actors know how to do it, or that you can say, "Well, I'll do it this way, do it this way," and go on. But to explore that, because that's a strong, strong piece of the storytelling, and in. You know, the the short time that I've been exposed to that over the last couple of years, I've really tried to be um, proselytized about it so that anybody who's working in theater um, is aware of this and starts to take advantage of it. Because just like a fight choreographer, it adds so much to the piece. Now I'll get off my soapbox and turn this back over to you, (laughs) No, it's all right
1: because it's very um, important. It's very important to know because um, I've had to have intimate moments. Um, you were there for two. You were there for three of them actually, Mike. Dad, What the heck? Um, I've had had intimate moments on stage, and each time I I had uh, I established an understanding with my intimate moment partner and her uh, and her husband or or boyfriend. So I kind of like did some version of that. You know what I'm saying, like. I don't like stage. I don't like stage intimacy and stuff because uh, Adrian, the person, is a bit, of, a bit of a player. You know that player beat. Anyway, moving on. Um. <laughs> um. So my dream piece would be whatever it is me and uh, me and Doc. There is going to come up with when I come up to Philadelphia and we chat. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Or if she happens to find her way down to North Carolina, whichever. Happens. Either one. But uh, and and I mm. yeah, like I would really like to direct the Broadway musical because you know Broadway musicals are great. Which you know when I walked away when I when I was in New York and I walked around Broadway. You know I saw Family of the Opera, which has been up there since creation. You know it's like God said, "Let there be light." Then Family of the Opera started. Um, <laughs> cats too. Yeah. Cats. Oh
5: God, they're both written by the same guy.
1: Exactly. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, you yeah, know what? You know what? Both on band, both on. It's called Jesus Christ Superstar. He wrote that one. again. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. You can't deny Andrew Lloyd Webber's man.
5: He's been around for. You can't, you
1: can't deny. <laughs> and you know what? It's crazy when Stephen Schultz banned his work from North Carolina. I was like, but you know, I've already did one Stephen Show's work, Godspell. I'm about to do another Stephen Show's work, uh, and, I'm in a, and I'm currently in a Stephen Show's work working. So I'm like, ha ha ha! How you like that, Stephen Shows? But I get why he, I, I get why he kept that in North Carolina during that time. Um, let's see. But you know, while we're talking about music, so Jennifer is a singer. Um, nope, not a I, singer. What? Oh,
4: you i'm saying- not a singer no i was a violist first um and then after i was a then a composer and then a director i fell in love with directing i never sang they
1: well, you know how to put the music we you know how to put it together um doc is a singer lauren got bars but uh, for those for those of you who are watching this and you are in a hip-hop circle when I say someone has bars, that means that they can rap very, very, very well. Just letting you know that. Now, Lauren got bars. Lauren, can you sing?
5: Um, I, so I used to be uh, classically vocally trained and then I got to a point where I got really delusioned about, uh, disillusioned about musical theater and I just decided, you know what, this isn't gonna be my thing. So I stopped, I used to be able to sing. Um, although I, I grew up a musician as much as a theater artist. In fact, they were both neck and neck for a while and I kind of had to choose one, but I've been playing cello for like six, seven years now. I can play the upright bass. I play piano. I've been playing that since I was five. Um, Doombeck, Beck, uh, trying to think uh, a little bit of melodica. So uh, music is very integral to who I am. I live in music and it's a huge part of what I bring to my acting, directing, writing, whatever.
1: Just for that I'm putting, just for that when I put my musical uh, up I'm casting you how you like the
5: maples? <laughs> all right I'm down
1: when me and Doc get our musical up we're casting you how you like that
5: all right I'm down I'm ready I love Philadelphia I'll go up there too I got some family up there so. oh
1: lovely lovely
5: yeah
1: road trip now someone else who's familiar with Philadelphia Mike. Mike just gave the lie that he cannot, that he cannot sing, Mike.
0: <laughs> I don't sing well. I can sell a song a lot better than I can sing it. Um, and in fact, I had probably my best audience response doing a musical, it was in Heather's The Musical, And in the midst of a song called I Love My Dead Gay Son, um, I had to reach out and kiss the other man uh, who was there on stage with me. And we had staged it without any intimacy coordinators that we would kiss or hug, kiss, and then I'd reach behind and grab his butt and it got the best audience response that i've had in 30 years of theater. So i figured i probably should have started doing that sooner but it's still it was a lot of fun to do and uh, he carried me as far as singing thank goodness but i also do understand the the strength that music can bring to a show where it can can tell truths too true to be real i guess for lack of a better phrase And and love directing a well-written musical and um, and seeing the impact it has on an audience.
1: You forget that I was just like two inches away from you. We were saying, "Here's who my wife to be."
0: (laughs) There was that time, yes.
1: (laughs) I mean, hey, you did a daggone good job. What? What do I know? I'm just hosting a podcast and whatnot. What do I know? But yeah, I think you. I think you did pretty. I think you did pretty well. in um 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 shoot, uh, dang! What the heck? Fiddler on the Roof. She-
0: With Fiddler? <laughs> well, Laser Wolf. i kind of got the beard for it, so it works.
1: I just had a 35-year-old moment. My bad, y'all.
0: <laughs> oh no.
4: This, yeah, Lauren this, yeah, Lauren, yeah, Jennifer, this is what happens when you hit thirty-five.
5: I'm past thirty-five, but thank you. <laughs> By the way, Jennifer, I just yeah, want to saying. say there's a reason I knew I liked you because you were a viola player and I'm a cellist and Yes. Those two sections it always is, have right? their shit together and always That's wait right. on the violins to get it figured out. Every exactly. time it's
3: wanting it's to nice. kill the violinist, yes. <laughs> I do I love
5: violinists, but holy shit!
3: Yeah, there's the oh, demons of the of the string.
5: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're either amazing or they're terrible. It's just you never get somebody who's mediocre at violin.
1: So, um, so what y'all are so what y'all are showing is uh, the most the most proficient, the most talented. The most cultured, the most knowledgeable directors can cover basically any any part, any side of the show. You know what I'm saying? Like a true director is a casting director. They have to look at they look at the people who are auditioning. They're like, hey, I'll take that one. I'll take that one. I'll take that one. And if the actor needs coaching or help on whatever, you know, the director could say, okay, here's how you play a cello. Here's how you play a cello in the show. Or this is how you can, you know, rap a little bit in a show. Um, this is how you can... Oops, here's how you can um, talk with a Philadelphian accent in a show. That's what the director does. The director assists in character development. The director um, the director stretches the actor to a place where they don't think they could go. Like... uh. And I don't think that's just for the actor. I think a good director stretches their crew as
3: well. They stretch the they stretch the artistry of anyone that's working with them. You want people to, you know, the word director has its roots in the word teacher, uh, and so the idea that the director is the I often say the director is the head of the snake, and the because this it, it leads the rest of the body where it's supposed to go, uh, and so. Uh, a good director is is going to get you to look at things as an artist that you might not have ever looked at before and and hopefully um, put you, point you in the right direction so that, because that's our job, so that you understand the story without me having to knock you over the head. That then you, that allows your artistry to bloom. You know what I'm saying? So the, to me, that's one of the primary things I want to push. I want to push my tech designers. I want to push my actors. I want to push even the front of the house. How can we make this better so that when the audience comes in, that they feel that they are submersive in the piece, that everything is seamless
1: as much as possible when they come into the house. And you know, Sanslovsky operated that way. He did not... The uh, fourth wall was basically non existent to him. He want he did not uh, he wanted the audience to not feel like they were watching a the show. They wanted to feel like they were a part of life happening. And to some effect I believe that that's the best theater. Yeah, other times, I don't know. If I'm in if I'm in an audience, if I'm in a New York or uh, Philadelphia, non-COVID, non-social distance uh, audience. On a Friday night, and I'm uh, and I'm on a date and stuff. I want to just sit back and watch the show. I'm like, yo, I pay my I pay my thirty dollars to see a show. I don't, I don't want to be part of it. Mm. <laughs> I don't know how uh, and, and, and I'm I'm
3: gonna be totally. I don't know how an audience member cannot be part of it. Okay. It, 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 it because the whole idea of performances that it has mm-hmm. to be somebody they're watching and witnessing, and so the audience that exchange of emotion its electrifying. That's one of the things I think we miss so much about live theater in this COVID moment is that exchange of energy and so as an actor when I am giving my best on stage the audience is going to feel it and we're going to hear the laughter or we're going to hear the awe or we're going to hear the tears and so you are the audience goes through it just as much as uh, sitting in their seats as we do going through it on stage. That's the whole notion of catharsis. You know what I'm saying? We're all going through this emotional purge together. So I don't know how you can, as an audience member, sit there and say, oh, I'm not, I, I don't want to... I just want to sit and watch. You know what I'm saying? Right. I guess there is, to a certain extent, a voyeuristic nature to it. But I'm also, you know, uh, if I'm just sitting there and I see all the strings and I'm not being entertained and I'm not emotionally connected to what's going on stage, I'm the one, the loud one saying, excuse me, let me get the fuck on out. I got, pardon my French. Right. Uh, but I got to go because I have better things to do with my time. And so, and it's like, I want, I want that visceral experience that the actor is going through. As, and as a director, I try to, in my work, to give people that visceral experience. Uh, I, if, if I want you to cry in the scene, I need to be able to make myself cry. I'm going through this process, I have to put those elements, I have to be able to tell that story so we can get to that point, because that's where the scene is supposed to be, emotionally. And so, it, and so, I want the audience to, I, and, you know, I, it's to me, it's just immersive. Though. The whole idea is not just sitting there and, uh, have you ever heard of Bertolt Brecht?
4: Yeah.
1: Bertolt who?
3: Bertolt Brecht. I haven't. Okay, Bertolt Brecht was kind of the antithesis of Stanislavski, you know? And so um, Bertolt Brecht believed that the audience should never, to a certain extent, should never be totally emerged into the play because uh, Bertolt Brecht was a political director. He was was directing during the time of Nazi Germany. He was a contemporary of Adolf Hitler. He, uh, and actually, I, I love telling this story, both of them were up for the same job as the artistic director of the German National Theater at the time, but the job went to Bertolt Brecht instead of Adolf Hitler. And so, uh, and Bertolt Brecht spent his time as, as Hitler was rising in power, uh, writing plays that were anti-Nazi. And so much so he ended up having to leave Germany Quite uh, during the during that time period, because uh, Hitler hated him so much. But Bertolt Brecht understood that the power of theater was not just telling stories to where people became passive. You know, uh, Aristotle says uh, theater is to teach and delight is it's, it's to teach and delight so you are there to learn something you're there to understand something better and so Bertolt Brecht took that to the extreme and so in a show like um uh Caucasian Chalk Circle uh, Mother Courage and his children her children he would literally put songs in there that had really no connection to the play or even the three penny opera but they um But they pulled the audience out and they were often very political and talked about the situation that was going on. So that he wanted the audience to walk out of there and be able to want to change the world. And I think that's what theater is supposed to do. it, It wants us, you know, Greek citizens were required to go to the theater. It was the citizen's job to go to the, just as it is to vote, it was their job to go and watch because they believed that to be a better citizen, you have to be able to understand people and understand uh, what's going on in place, allows us to see worlds that we may not get to see and experience things that we can therefore go back and put into the world. So theater has that power. And just to be sit there and be placid, is not our job as audience to make the audience, just uh, as, as artist to make the audience just sit there and go, oh, that was a lovely story. No. No, 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 no. I want you to walk out of the theater thinking, even if you're humming a song as you walk out, I still want you thinking about what you saw on stage and how it was impactful and how the next time you might find yourself in a situation similar, you have another way. I'm sorry to go on. I can, child, I can talk all day. <laughs> okay. But, you know, in teaching, and te- I taught middle school students for a while. And I often, I use the techniques of uh, Augusto Boal, who was a, a, a theater uh, practitioner in Brazil. And he came up with the idea of theater of the oppressive, which went along with Ferrer's education uh, um, of the oppressed. And, uh, and the uh, idea that putting uh, I would l- uh, let the students we would write scenarios that the students might encounter in their lives because a lot of times we don't know um, depending upon uh, upbringing and so on and so forth we don't have the mechanisms to, to defuse or deactivate uh, uh, high level anxiety situations and I think theater gives people those avenues different ways to think about what if instead of reacting this way being knee-jerked how can I you know, do it in another way that diffuses the situation and everybody walks away. And I'm, I'm reminded of a, a student of mine. He had, we um, had done some work in class and he came in one day and he was late to class and I was like, what, why are you late? He was like, well, I had this problem at the store coming and, uh, and, I, and I thought about what we did. The man accused me of stealing something. And instead of screaming at the, the store clerk and all this other kind of stuff, I told him, no, look, here's my, and, and dude, this is what, and he explained it to the guy and the guy let him go and then call the police. He had another way. He didn't become agitated because he thought, oh, I can handle this because I saw this over here. I saw this character acting this way in a similar situation. And now I have the tools by which to, deal with this in my own life. And I think that's one of the power of theater. And so I go around that story.
0: But anyway. I, I agree very much, Odancy. Uh, I think it's, film is a wonderful medium and it can really tell some interesting stories. And you've certainly got different ways to tell that story by film than you do on a stage. But the impact of an audience seeing real people doing things Indeed. on stage I think it's so powerful. Uh, I, I mean, the, the old meme that, that, that floats around, and TV is crap, film is art, theater is life. And when you're seeing a person 30, 50, 100 feet from you, doing, interacting, and accomplishing things, I think that carries a much more powerful <laughs> message than flipping on the TV and watching some Yahoo in a sitcom.
1: <laughs> I will say that there have been times when I was performing in, in a play, um, I would say on the, on the, on my side of the fourth wall, I'm like, you know, I'm going, I'm in the, I'm in the flow and stuff, but once I say something funny, or once I say something, on the audience, in the audience reacts, just pause, you know, just pause. I'm still in the world of the play, but I'm pausing because the fourth wall has been laughed, has been, uh, has been tampered with, and laughter is taking place, and then once it ends, I'm, I'm going. Now, as we start as we start to wrap this up, um, what does the future hold for you all? Jennifer, you first. Dang, why are you looking to the left? Why are you looking to the right like that?
4: Sorry? Oh, I get that's just where my the camera is on my my little tablet here. Um let's see. I have, let's see, I have a lot of, uh, not, well, I don't have a lot of a lot of things anymore, but the, my future is all about immersive theater, actually, and um, maybe a little devised work, but I'm doing, um, let's see, a lot less linear narratives and traditional canonical uh, repertoire and more, you know, finding the distilling stories to their essence. Okay, okay, very yeah.
1: nice.
4: So like playing with the experience, I think, you know, we brought the, the conversation about how to interact with, you know, interacting with audiences and how, you know, inciting them to take less passive roles. And I think one of the challenges of immersive theater is that on one hand, you have that it's inherently interactive, right? So people are kind of startled out of that that pa- that passive setting. But on the other hand, not everyone operates that way. So that can be really off-putting and cause people to shut down. So um, I've been creating experiences that have these different simultaneous levels, so different people can can have a p- point of access for wherever they are. And I think, um, let's see, one of the most successful things in that endeavor was this Rigoletto performance where I had a network of different things where people could look around and choose a certain installation that resonated with them that they could come enter. So, I would have, you know, for example, there was one installation where the uh, mobster chorus guys took over this table and started playing a poker game and made everyone play with them. Um, And so it was super loud and fun, but you know, there was also a much quieter installation where uh, Jilda, who had just been um, abducted and assaulted, uh, was wandering very quietly through the. the balcony asking people if anyone witnessed what happened so was, you know uh there are lots of different experiences and different points of entry for for people to um engage and i want to do more work like that um, i'm creating a kind of movement composition piece in in the future for the judson uh in new york that's going to be uh based on barry's requiem Um, And I wanna circle back to that ritual um, experience that I landed on with the four last songs. And now I'm thinking about it really differently because now uh, New Yorkers and everyone else have had this experience of extreme isolation. And so community building, the feeling of community is really uh you know a dire need right now and that's kind of extraordinary about what going into theater is a group of strangers go into this space and then through the magic of performance we leave a community um you know through this experience and um that's really what i want to do with uh um this very requiem next
1: all right man we need someone here in north carolina Yes, indeed. And see, since here in Philadelphia, you go, you could just uh, head down the road for an hour and a half and go see it. Right, I can. Me, Mike, and Lauren, we gotta get plane tickets. We're here in the Piedmont Triad. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take Greyhound. Don't take Greyhound. Greyhound. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, Amtrak is a good Amtrak lineup, though. Yeah. It's a long
5: ride, but it's doable.
1: It is. So what you got coming up, Lauren?
5: Um... Well, I'm trying to finish my undergrad first. That's the biggest thing. But um, I think what I'm realizing is that, you know, cause like for me, I, I come from a, an ethnicity that just isn't common. I come from uh, the Romani people. Nobody writes plays about us. Nobody does. You know, nobody writes film for us. Nobody writes anything. So anytime I play anything, I'm either trying to not be an imposter and be respectful of somebody else's culture I'm trying to find a way to step into it that's ethical. Um, So I think my big thing is I really need to just get on writing. I need to finish my undergrad. I need to write a bunch of shit. um, And I need to get some experience directing that stuff so I know how to translate the experiences that not just minorities, but also my group of people come from so I can start helping other people experience that and understand it. Um, I'm also... I, I think it's important to balance that you know that sensationalism that experientialism where people come in and they have a good time with that that activism that teaching as well so for me i want my the theater and the film that i'm a part of to impact people so i think learning more about how to effectively do that and i'm still figuring out how to do that it might be hopefully through talking to the rest of you after this uh, maybe coming, seeing some shows. If you guys have any advice, you know, I'm trying to get into this stuff more than anything. So I'm, I'm just trying to learn as much as I can, um, and get on it, you know, and start making shit. That's kind of my plan right now.
1: Um, Lauren, I'll tell you this, man. Um, Lin Manuel Miranda wrote in the Heights and Hamilton, mostly in the Heights, because there wasn't that much there wasn't that much, That many roles on stage for uh, Latinx people you know what I'm saying uh, you got uh, outside of uh, outside of um, 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 West Side Story really wasn't that many uh, opportunities so yeah basically since since there's no since you don't see any opportunities for Romani people about Romani people creator you have to create if i and if i can write and create plays sheesh you know what i'm saying so mike what's next for you
0: well actually something that although it's a little late for this iteration for lauren but um both greensboro and winston-salem have short play festivals where local writers can get their pieces produced, um, put on stage. And it's well worth looking into, Adrian's got some contacts in the Greensboro area. Um, uh, Like I said, I've been working with the the short play festival here uh, and directing a piece that'll go up. It's all done Zoom at this point because that's theater at this point, but it gives a chance for writers to have their pieces looked at uh and, and certainly recommend you know take those steps to explore um i have, have that coming up in the next month or so i've uh, auditioned for a shakespeare piece again a zoom piece i have been talking with the folks at where local theaters about what we can do in the way of zoom or socially distanced theater while uh, our normal venues are shut down um ardenzi you mentioned lisa strada uh, been toying with the idea of putting it on in an outdoor setting as, similar to the theaters that it originally would have been would done have been, in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and hoping n- now that it's, it's COVID and the local theaters have no financial resources anymore, they'll take something that has no royalties attached to it um, and, and try to mount it and put it on. So I, if I can sell that to to the folks. That will be a piece. Um, I had been slated to direct Lend Me a Tenor, Mm -hmm. which is a farce delving into Jennifer's area of expertise uh, from a number of years ago at a a local theater. We had it cast and had to read through in a couple nights of table work when Covid shut it down. But the theater company says, well, back when, next when we open up, we'll bring you back. And I've told the cast, I'd love to have you back. If you can make it, if you can't, I'll look for someone else. So that's a long way out whenever our governor allows us to uh, gather three or more together in a room. No, that's a whole different storyline. Never mind. Um, (laughs) And trying to find, thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Um,
3: You're welcome.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, but just continue to look for ways to make theater, to connect through theater, to tell mm-hmm. stories while we're um, in a, a handicapped situation.
1: Oh, I hate you, COVID. <laughs> oh. Doc. Yes. What you got coming up? Please bring news to my ears. Uh,
3: we, we are, as I said, we're my company... Uh, we're getting ready to open. Well, we're in COVID, so I'll, but I'm still going to use the word "open" premiere our uh, show called "All Lives Don't Matter," which is um, it's a political piece. It's uh, it's uh, based on I'm 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 an historian at heart, um, and so I I love politics and I love history, and so. Uh, I u- utilized the technique of the living newspaper, which comes out of the WPA in the 1930s, uh, and uh, used it to create this show. Um, and uh, around the time Black Lives Matter started getting in uh, 2016. And I wrote, I was working in an afterschool program, doing an after-school program as part of our work as a theater company, uh, teaching in North Philadelphia, uh, kids free theater in arts. Uh, And so um, the kids needed a way to deal with the death of Trayvon Martin and Chimer Rice and what was happening during that time period. And so I um, started writing pieces for them, and it has grown since. And and so we're doing that, and now we're doing it utilizing um, um, digital, virtual. Uh, so um, we have used locations, been out in the woods, performing parts of it in, in the woods, in the streets, and then put that on film, and that'll be going up on Thursday as part of the Philadelphia Fringe Festival. Um, nice. And then uh, in November, we are, because uh, I, I, I really want to do some Shakespeare right now because I was in a situation where uh, one of the theater uh, mothers here I, one of my sisters in theater uh, called together a group of, of all the theater artists and we were talking about how we can change theater and and bring be, make theater in Philadelphia very much more inclusive because it is uh, a very segregated theater community um, uh, you have a um, considering the the population of the city. And so uh, there was one of the artistic directors of one of the theaters, he he made this statement. Well, you know, most of the Black Actors are not trained to do classical theater, and of course, my head started spinning around my neck. <laughs> like I was in, um, I was in uh, what's that, The Exorcist? Uh, I just didn't let anything go. Well, I was spewing, but, but that, it wasn't IBM, and so uh, and so I was like, hmm, that's real interesting. So, I, I so I wanted to, I always, I've always been one who likes to prove people. Uh, so, so, uh, I, and I love, as I said before, I've, I've loved Shakespeare. I trained with the Royal Shakespeare Company. I love Shakespeare. So, what are you were talking about? Um, so, I, I'm I'm hoping to do a Zoom reading of either uh, I did an adaptation of Well, I did an adaptation of uh, Taming of the Shrew, and I've done an adaptation of, of, of uh, Much Ado About Nothing. So, it'll be one of those two, ah, a- and that. And that'll be sometime in and those will be done on zoom and that'll be sometime in november and then in for february we're doing a show that i wrote a musical called ain't nobody which is based it's a civil rights musical. so i've taken the civil rights movement and turned it into a musical so
1: so um just to let you know my reaction to that my reaction is just now it isn't me having a thirty-five-year-old crazy man, crazy old man moment. It's because prior to this demonic COVID, I was supposed to play Baratcio in the Goodly Frame Theater version of Much Do About Nothing. Nothing. During it, COVID came along and screwed it up. But at least I was in a triage reading. It up. Yeah, that bad, So
2: hey. <laughs>
3: see but i asked i mean I, don't get me wrong I, I i think COVID, and don't get me I, we said no political talk tonight and i've been doing real good holding back but you, well, keep, mention, but you, keep, but you keep but you keep mentioning COVID, and so uh i think if for me covet has has its downside but it has also had uh, in a weird way a plus side artistically it has made me really try to think things outside of the box um and as i have said to people on many occasions theater has survived many a plague we go be all right so you know so this is just one more plague And, and out of each one new innovations come and so i'm excited to see those innovations and how uh i'm seeing them through zoom performance and how it's going to translate when we do get back into the actual space so i'm i'm excited about that it's making us reinvent ourselves you know so i'm political um, i know but i was going to start about 45 and that's <laughs> the <laughs> 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 but but yeah but i i took it another way i took it another way
1: and uh well thank you, uh,
3: mm-hmm.
1: thank you. um we're not going to let we're not going to let the um, two individuals who are uh, going for the office of the presidency of the United States uh, put a damper on our um, theater um, uh, because that's uh because that's showing itself.
3: And, and and the thing is, I don't think it should put a damper. I think it should energize us.
5: Yeah,
3: it should energize mm-hmm. us. You know, I, I tell my students all the time. You know, the fool was the only one who could say shit to the king and get Mm -hmm. away with it and still be able to have their head the next day. And they often look at artists as fools because we do outlandish things. We we are willing to put ourselves out there and do foolish things for a laugh or for a cry or for someone to understand something else about the human condition. And so, uh, yeah. I think once again I'm going back to Brecht and this whole idea that theater can have that power to be able to talk. That's why you see playwrights around the world who get put in jail, who artists who get put in jail because of the things yeah. that they write. Because they talk to they talk to people like those two are running and let them and hold the mirror up. As Shakespeare says, our job is to hold the mirror up to society to see the horrible, to see the good, the bad, and all of it of humanity. That is our job. And so yeah come see all lives don't matter mm-hmm. Lauren, there's a reason, like- there's reason that it has that title okay
1: Shh. say it again it's called all lives don't matter so real quick i'm gonna say this real quick then we're going then i'm going to get y'all's contact information we're going to wrap this up i'm going to say this real quick um I wasn't going like get all I wasn't going to get spiritual or anything in this particular conversation because not everybody has the same belief I do. I know Mike does, but I don't know I don't know about the rest of y'all. But I say this. Um I hate Nazis and I hate KKK members. When someone says all lives don't matter, when when someone says all lives don't matter, those are the first two that come that come in my mind. Nazis, KKK members. They white, say all lives matter. There's a difference. They say well, this, all lives matter. Well this won't get in there. This won't okay. get in there. Okay. Um, uh, like I said, white supremacists, KKK members, and um uh, Nazis. Um, whenever um uh, I I remember having a talk with a friend and um I said, Yeah, all lives do matter and stuff. That's why we say black lives matter. But he said, Do all lives matter? Because do their lives matter? and I had to sit back and I had to do like a spiritual, I had to do kind of like a spiritual check on myself. Now, those lives, now those lives may not matter to us, but they matter to God, they matter big time to God. So is it, is it me hating the person or is it me hating the, um, hating the heinous act that has uh, overcome their, who they are as people? Right, so I say, I would say to any white supremacists out there, any Nazi, any KKK member, take that, uh, get rid of that swastika, get rid of that white hood, and your life, and your life matters again. I mean, I mean, me, you make you make my summit turn, but to God, but God loves you. So why, so why is there so, many hate in your, so much hate in your heart? You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm kind of like doing. That's where I'm kind of like doing um, a self check. I don't want to become so overcome with hate where I'm hate where I'm hating people. But best believe, you coming at me with a noose, or you coming to me, or you coming at me. Best believe, I'm from Shelby, North Carolina. I'm ready to scrap. Mm-hmm. Does anything I'm saying make any sense? yes
5: yeah, yeah. I, mean,
1: I think it,
3: it's really about being uh, and, and this is a, you find this a lot I think trying to separate the person from their ideology and sometimes that can be somewhat difficult you know what I'm saying? And, and you just have to leave some people alone and let and let God do what God does uh, best you know what I'm saying uh, but as a, a putting this back in the art I'm going to put in your face my story and this and you can't deny my story and I from and I can honestly say to you that through your actions through what you do through what you say it tells me that even though you may say all lives matter your actions aren't doing that they're not they're not proving that to me
1: Actions speak
5: louder than words. To kind of build on what you just said, um, I don't know how familiar y'all are with like the underground scene, but there's a guy named Brother Ali who. Um,
1: uh,
5: I'll send it. I'll send it because we have a group chat on Facebook, so I'll send it to you guys later. But there's a song he has that talks about this a little bit where when because the reason people are so fucked up in our society right is that systematically that's how things have been set up to benefit a certain few um that 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 there's damage that's done dually, by telling one group of people they're better than another that they have the right to infringe on other people's humanity you know i mean for me it's like i had a moment the other day where i had to like shut off social media and everything because I just saw these images of all these people in boats and stuff and their boats were sinking. And there's that one part of me that's like, "Oh, fuck those people. They believe shitty things. And then there's the part of me that's like, that is a desperate misguided person who's crying out for help and they're in danger. They're still a human being. And if our system wasn't built in a way that fucked everybody up, that had led to so many people being disenfranchised, especially black people, um, you know, that white people would be better off too you know that if, if we can figure this out if people are willing to really understand their privilege understand the way they've been conditioned and start to try to deprogram that and go into the communities and deprogram that which is part of the reason i do theater hmm. you know i think as that happens I, I i think we'll see people a lot healthier i think that's why like you know, suicides are so high right now. I think that's why people are abusing drugs, abusing alcohol and stuff. Because people are hopeless. They don't know how to process the situations they're in. And every group is being told different stuff about how they get to exist in this world we live in. And it's fucking us all up, you know. And I'm not saying that it's okay they believe those things. It's not. And they should be punished, I personally believe. Especially if they come and try to hurt people. I think people deserve to defend themselves, but... I just, I hope through theater we can slowly start to get some people to understand how misguided they are and maybe start to deprogram some of this bullshit.
1: I think that's why we all do theater because something inside of us just wants to uh, make the world a better place. And by showing the world as a better place, that's how we do it, right? Indeed. Absolutely. Now, on the liar note. How can the world at large, or those who are watching? No, no, no. Like I said, the world at large, because the world's gonna see your incredible opera and in experimental theater, your incredible experimental theater, your incredible uh, short play in theater, and uh, you sing some more, Mike, and uh, and, th- <laughs> and Doc, your incredible theater, all every, all of our incredible theater. Oh yeah, I didn't say what I got coming up. Set uh, November sixth. Zoom, YouTube, A Espanol, written and directed by yours truly. Check it out. Now, um, how can people get in contact with you all? Doc, you first. Um, you can go to our
3: website. It's uh, arden, A-R-D-E-N dash Blair, B-L-A-I-R dot com. And you can go there for tickets. You could look at our website and hits up or you can go on to facebook our theater company is called kaleidoscope cultural arts collective or kcac and we have a facebook page where you can get a link to uh, our show that's coming up it's five dollars we're celebrating our fifth year uh as a theater company so uh, tickets of five dollars for all lives don't matter we start
1: on thursday um, where uh, where would they be able to uh, find it at? Uh, what platform? Uh, it, we're doing it through Zoom. All right. Okay. Um, Jennifer.
4: Uh, let's see. You can find me on Instagram, JW Director, uh, my Facebook page, which is Jennifer Williams Director, my professional Facebook page, Director Facebook page. Um, or you can send me an email through my website, jenniferwilliamsdirector.com, and then the contact page.
1: All right. Lauren.
5: Um, I I don't have a lot of professional platforms yet. I'm sort of in the process of setting that up right now, but I'm also, I try to wear my heart on my sleeve. So just go to my Facebook, Lauren Kaplan, L-O-R-I-N-K-A-P-L-A-N on Facebook. Um, I go to UNCG. uh, So you can use my school email, L-A-K-A-P-L-A-N at UNCG.edu. Those are the two easiest and probably fastest ways to
1: contact me. I I forgot your name Uh, that cool dude that handsome dude whatever uh, it's one
5: of those on uh, Instagram Uh, the intense fellow I think the the one for an eye but that is not a professional that is not a professional Instagram people are welcome to go check it out but uh, there will be better avenues for that in the future
1: and Mike how can people get in contact with
0: you before I give that out I do want to say Lauren you're a much better man than I am um, because nobody got hurt in that lake in Texas, that means I can laugh at their butts for the boats having some, <laughs> and I do. Um, I still laugh at them, but, too. <laughs> 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 but um, um, email Won't he address is... do it? Is, Won't he do it? <laughs> <laughs> my email address is mburkws at gmail.com, and um, I'm working right now a lot with the Little Theater of Winston-Salem, and their website is uh, www.mburkws.com. LTWS.org. So that can check out, you can check out the, the short plays as they're coming up and uh, anything else that, that I'm able to work out with them through these COVID restrictions until they get their next season up and running.
1: Okay. And if you want to holler at me, my email is adq 4 number 4 price at gmail.com. My um, Instagram is dionchocolateguy 85 um, let's see. My Twitter is avenue 80 <laughs> underscore 85. That's right, named it after the play Avenue Q. And- I'm sorry. Was a, it was, a, it was a chocolate
3: God part. It was a yeah, chocolate god, god part. That's chocolate. the part right there. That was the part. <laughs> Yo. I
1: chocolate. I chocolate. And Psalm 82 and 6 says, I say you are guys. you are children of the most high. I'll just name it. I'm just calling. I'm name where I am. And on Facebook, my name, uh, you can find me by my full government name, Adrian Dion Quarles, A-D-R-I-A-N, D-I-O-N, Q-U-A-R-L-E-S, or you can just dag on look at the screen. Uh, please, please, please don't call the CIA on me. Also, also, let's see, a couple new platforms. Um, in order to hear this episode and other episodes of ADQ's Renaissance in their entirety, the other 65 episodes, that's right, this is episode 66, um, go to https uh, colon uh, slash slash anchor.fm slash adrian dash quarles. quarrels or on Facebook, facebook.com slash 80 Renaissance. You'll find uh, no, no, no. 80 Renaissance 85. One whole word. Um, you will find updates. You will see videos of my past stuff and all of that. And yeah, I think you will greatly enjoy yourself. And also, I shouted them out earlier. I'll shout them out again. Also, just remind you all, um, check out The Insurgents. The Insurgent by my man, God King June. Dope hip hop album. Uh, check out, uh, Clock on the Wall by my man, GP, Mr. GP, featuring Nat Man. Um, check out the upcoming film, Generations, by uh, Queen's sister, uh, Tamika Allen. And if you're in Winston-Salem or surrounding areas, Battle of the Sexes by upcoming guest, James Lyons. That's Uncle Ezell's Battle of the Sexes. Um, it was, it's at 6 p.m. on 500, Canard Drive, in Winston-Salem. Don't let that $40 price deter you. Now, thank you all very much. Thank you all very much for joining me. This has been ADQ's Renaissance. This has been the director's cut. We are, ladies and say we are the voice of the theater geeks. We are the
3: voice of the theater. We geeks.
1: are the voice of the
3: theater We're geeks. The geeks. We're, the the theater geeks. <laughs> We're directors. The we don't follow directions the very geeks. well.
5: Yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give directions. We don't follow directions. What are you doing? We started. <laughs>
1: nobody came into this as a director. We all started as actors. But anyways,
3: uh, um, <laughs> i mean for i mean in all honesty i was gonna i was I, I, the institution i was going to just as i got there they canceled their bfa directing program so i had no choice <gasps> but to become damn just go into acting and i was like that but it was like okay that was and then, where you belong that's and right. then I said, and, 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 and I, I, will, I will say it benefited me because to a certain extent, it gave me the lingo I needed in order to be able to speak to actors better. So I, I appreciate
1: my, you know, what
3: I learned in that process. So. And we
1: all can agree that November 6th, we are going to watch A Español. Real quick, I'm going to tell you why we're going to watch it on November 6th. Here's why. Number two, I mean, number one, November the 2nd is the Hispanic Day of the Dead. You know, show love, show love. November 3rd is the American Day of the Dead, AKA Election Day. So we're going to spend the 4th and the 5th recuperating. Here come the 6th, what better way to recuperate from either the election of Joe Biden or the reelection of Trump by watching theater. And a piece that I've been working on for a couple of years. A Español. Excited to see it. uh, Thank you. I hope y'all see it. I hope y'all enjoy it. But y'all have been watching ADQ's Renaissance. These are some of the greatest directors in the entire world. Thank y'all for watching. Everybody have a blessed, blessed, blessed evening. Deuces!